Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sportland Training and Fitness Sports Talks Podcast, the people behind the posts. Now, constantly, over the last two or three years, all we've heard of is what people are doing in their day-to-day life, in the gym, in their business, and everyone's coming up pretty much with the same things. And you know what? I'm a little bit bored of that. So what I'm here to do is to find out the reasons why people are doing what they're doing. Find out what has scared them. Find out what's put them outside their comfort zone. Find out really what makes them tick because that's where the magic happens. That's what's exciting and that's what's going to help you and it's going to help me push forward in our careers. And you know what? Just have a little bit of a conversation as well while we're at it because at the end of the day, I listen to these in my car. I want to be entertained. So maybe I can help entertain you. Now we both know this is the bit that we all hate in the beginning of podcasts. It's time for the sponsorship. However, don't skip it. Sit tight and listen because I've got a couple of cool things for you. This podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is the world's top software for strength and conditioning coaches for writing training programs online. From the US to Australia to the UK, Team Builder works with the top professional teams, including a majority of the Premier League as well as any level below. Right now, if you use the code SPORTLAND when you start a free trial and gain access to complimentary exercise videos and training templates as part of your trial. You can even keep the programs when you purchase a subscription. So go to teambuilder.com to learn more. Now, teambuilder.com is T-E-A-M-B-U-I-L-D-R.com. This software is cool, and not only for online, it's going to help you organize and structure your teams so much easier. It's paperless. You've got all your wellness reports in there. You've got all your monitoring. You've got all your speed, conditioning. It's a real nice tool, which is going to cut out all those files and paperwork and clunky Excel spreadsheets for you. So check it out. Also, now, what I need to talk to you about is the Strength Coach Network. The Strength Coach Network has been set up by Keir Wenham Flat, the rugby strength coach, and Jada Mayo of the Central Virginia Sports Performance pod, uh, Podcasts and Seminars, CVAS for short. This website is the number one place in the world or the universe where you can find the best training, advice, talking to coaches, communicating with people that probably wouldn't answer an email or a cold call from you. So what you need to do is go over there. There's hundreds of lectures from Brian Mann, my, uh, myself, Keir, Henk Krejnov, Dr. Michael Yesis, Buddy Morris. You name it, it's on there. Get yourself over there and check it out. There's a link in the bio that's going to give you two days trial for a dollar. Two days for a dollar to get inside that program and you can see that it's going to be the best investment that you've made for your career at developing yourself as a strength and conditioning coach. I'm on it. I'm watching the lectures every week and, and, and talking to people and making stuff happen. So head over to the bio. Check out the links. Team Builder is a promo code Sportland and also Strength Coach Network. Check the link in the bio. Now time for the podcast. 
Okay, uh, welcome back, you fucking filthy bastards. Coach Sportland here, Sports Talks. Uh, on the show today is uh, Phil Price, uh, Priceps as his Skype uh, username precedes him. Uh, welcome, well, the Phil. The Priceps. Yeah, the Priceps. How you doing, mate? I'm very well, yourself? Yeah, very good, very good. Ready to get into this show today. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting. Second Doctor on, uh, following Brian Mann. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's just going to be very, very interesting, uh, especially the angle that we're looking at, given your current role. So also, if you know people don't know, just give us a little brief insight to, to who you are. Yes, yeah, so I am the program director for the strength and conditioning undergraduate degree at St Mary's University. So I'd say my main role as a, as a lecturer, I'm more of a biomechanist, but the biomechanist side of S&C. Uh, so I enjoy sort of the mechanics side of whatever movement it might be. I, I have a particular affinity for anything moving fast. Yeah. But uh, so that sort of side and understanding the anatomy and mechanics and how we can actually improve and uh, the efficiency of movement through that. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that, if, as I am running the undergraduate degree, there's quite a lot of administrative work to keep it going. I have a great team that I work with. Um, I try not to see myself, you know, program director than lecturers yeah. underneath. It doesn't really work that way. We are. I'm just involved with sort of administrative work to try and keep the degree running as effectively as possible. There's annual reviews, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so that is my primary role, sort of like the biomechanist side of S&C for the degree programme. Nice. I like the way that you pitch that as well. Like You don't sit above everyone, you sit, sit with them. Uh, ultimately, you'll be the one that gets fired first. Uh, uh, if there's any problem, it comes straight yeah. to me, uh, <laughs> yeah. especially with student reviews, feedback forms, any problems, it comes straight back to yeah. me. But everyone in the team has their own specialist area. Some might be more coachy, some might be more sciencey, academic. Um, we try and make sure that everyone is teaching in the areas that they feel most comfortable. If they feel most comfortable because they have the most knowledge in the area, then it translates better to the information that's getting out there to the students. So, you know, it's, it's, it's better that way. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. Sounds good. Uh, how long have you been doing that then? So, I started working at St Mary's in 2010. Okay, wow. So, nine years. Yeah, I've yeah. been around a lot. So, yeah, I've seen <laughs> some great people come and go, unfortunately. Um, I was actually a student, started at a, there wasn't actually any S&C degrees at that time. Yeah, yeah. Um, Started as sport, health and exercise science in 2005 at St. Mary's, graduated and then managed to get back in a teaching graduate assistant role okay. in 2010. So as I was teaching, I was doing a master's in S&C and then I did a PhD in bioengineering, um, which I, for my PhD, just as a quick overview, I used a mathematical model of the lower limb, uh-huh. which is more detailed around me. Yeah. Try to use it tool to try and understand the muscle forces of osteoarthritis patients. So, a bit of a uh, sidestep of yeah. S and C, yeah. um, but a lot of critical skills and scientific skills are learned there, which I'm hoping to now transfer back to the performance world and use that mathematical model to try and have a better understanding of what's going on at the knee. Um, it could be more of a performance strand or a rehab strand, but that's the type of population I'd like to work with. So I'm actually currently getting things in place to uh, really develop that side of my uh, research profile. Nice. nice. Why, why knees? <laughs> um, technically, it started when 
I, uh, I, st- I was working with the weightlifting club at the university. Yeah. Uh, and I was competing, and my ACL ruptured oh, during wow. the journey of it. Actually, a topical, um, is it Keir, yeah. the strength coach, put a, a post recently about people looking at you know, bilateral landings, people valgus, but you never really see any injuries happen in that set. You know, if yeah. it happens as non-contact, it's unilateral, like a sidestep. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, hold my beer. Let me just get this footage of me uh, managing <laughs> to rupture my ACL during a bilateral movement. Yeah. Um, so from that, I then rehabbed, tried to get back to, actually get back to rugby. And then 13 months later, I ruptured my other ACL. Oh. Uh, and I, so I actually went through a process where I had four surgeries in four and a half years. And I just wow. developed this idea of, okay, my knees are shit. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Uh, and that was, the, that was the start of my direction. I wanted to know why my, my knees were crap. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, usually the knee is the symptom, isn't it? It's that poor joint that's caught between the, the hip and the ankle, which is more stable. Yeah. Uh, and usually the issue is not at the knee, it's somewhere else. So I thought it was quite an interesting um, direction to take to yeah. try and understand what's going on. Yeah, um, well, well, I think you do. I think you produce your best work out of the problems that you have within yourself because whether we like it or not we all are subconscious narcissists so like there is that element you know I found I've done the best some of my best rehabs have come out of the injuries that I've done and then being able to translate that experience on um, and across everything you know yeah yeah. it's that whole like you make a good situation out of something that happened that went bad yeah Um, and I bet everyone that just looked back it doesn't necessarily have to be like lines of research but Everyone look back at this situation was bad. Well, I learned this. This yeah. situation was bad. I learned this. Um, so it's, you start to approach rubbish situations very differently now because you're like, it's almost like, okay, yeah, blank slate. Yeah, what can I actually learn from this? Yeah, once um, you get past the fact that it's heartbreaking that you're well injured in this case, but but you you still compete though. You race, you race, right? You do the crazy warrior runs and stuff. All the Spartans, the tough mudders. Well, actually, first tough mudders happening in a week tomorrow. But yeah, I um, I don't, I've always wanted to take some form of sport seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, tried weightlifting and rugby. Have always been the ones that I did throughout my twenties. Realised mm. <laughs> I just got injured, uh, and, and since the fourth surgery, I've. I've got myself in a position where I think, you know, my body is relatively robust yeah. um, to t- try and take on any challenge. Um, so now I've, I'm sticking to <laughs> sports that are in a straight line. Yeah, that's fair. Stacking off anything that involves any form of turning just because I, I just don't want to risk it. Um I seem to have these type of like hawk-like feet with Mary Poppins sticking out, and uh, I, I get that from my dad. I just think I'm a terrible. I'm still a terrible injury risk if I started went back to um, turning sports yeah. if I wanted to read or something. So I was like, there's just I just can't be bothered. So I tried to t- take on a new challenge, and I've been doing sort of obstacle course racing, trail runs. I never thought I'd be a runner, but yeah, that seems pretty big, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's really growing. Um, I have a feeling that whatever happens in the states, yeah, yeah, 
tends to happen to us about five years later. Yeah. Um, and you've, you've seen this explosion of CrossFit yeah. in the States, and it's really starting to hit last two years, start hitting the UK. Um, and I think OCR is just behind. So you never know where it can go. Yeah. Um, OCR at the moment seems to be the best runners have come from, they were good trail runners, but might not have been the best, yeah. or they were good triathletes and they've, you know, oh, I'm going to try something different. Mm. Um, but I think in the future, you're going to get these endurance athletes that normally they go down triathlons or trail uh, or, or some form of running yeah. and see OCR as a viable option. Yeah. So you're going to get some really good endurance athletes, you know, 15, 16, start to dominate. Rather yeah. it be like 30-year-olds that have played team sports all their 20s, broken yeah. and want something else to do. Yeah. So it would be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, because I guess, uh, how long, what are the distances of some of these? I prefer the short ones, yeah. which can range from 5K. But the longest one I've done is half marathon. Oh, fucking hell. That was horrible. Yeah. And it was yeah. it was just in the wet end of a sort of a season that we created. <laughs> I cramped up so many times during the last 8K. <laughs> so it wasn't actually a great performance, but it was, at least I said, I've actually run a half marathon with obstacles. Yeah. I'm trying to avoid that from, from now on. Yeah. I'm too heavy. Yeah. How much do you weigh? 91 to 92 kilos. Yeah, so... Not your, not your standard endurance athlete, so... No, well, this is what I'm thinking as well about how, like, that will grow and, like, who you'll, who you'll get, you know, that... With the... We think, like, you align it to CrossFit and stuff and the money that's getting involved in that, the professionalism of it all, well, the professionalism. Um, mm. Then, like, yeah, sky's the limit for it. Sky's the limit for it. Yeah, and I think all of these new online platforms and how people can develop businesses through these online platforms like Instagram, it's it's giving more opportunities for athletes to earn money yeah. so then they can just focus on training. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, I think it's exciting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Fair play. So I think it's always good, like, it's always good to keep your foot in the door of any sort of competition you know, keeps you on your own training well, especially if you're, you know, part of your job is to train other people or educate other people in that realm. You know, you've got to be doing something. You've got to stay on, on point with it, really. Well, yeah, it's good to use yourself as a guinea pig. Yeah. No. Especially if something goes, oh, I, that went wrong. I didn't think that would happen. You're yeah. like, okay, I've learned that something there, so you wouldn't then do it when you're working with others. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think a lot of us are just so goal-orientated. Yeah. And, agree with me here like we need something to work towards whether it be in academia i want to get four papers out this year yeah or i, I want to do well as a weekend warrior you know yeah. you yeah. just you just need something to plan towards because i think we crave structure yeah so that gives us an excuse to plan and get a routine and yeah. we feel comfortable and then uh that's that who we are versus what you do thing isn't it yeah um, the sh- and you find ways to get uncomfortable once you've got that comfort. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, going on about experimenting. So um, I've been looking at, like, with some of the assisted sprinting stuff um, and, like, with assisted drills and bits and pieces. And obviously there's not really much on the market apart from, like, the 1080 that, you know, you can really sort of do your assisted stuff with. So I, I went on uh, eBay 
and bought some six mil bungee cord. I bought six 10 meter lengths of, of bungee cord, right? Oh yeah. And just lassoed them up. And I just got them as like a clip on mechanism. Uh, and I was just running tens assisted to, and basically I was dummy, I knew, so I ran a flat 10 and I, and I knew like where my PB was for my 10 meter sprint uh, mm. at the, the sort of current training level. Uh, and then I was just catapulting myself, adding bands over and over again with like, <laughs> like full recoveries. And that I like then I had I worked out like a percentage chart based on these bands, how many bands of how much speed like assistance they give you. I was yeah. fucking smoked the following day, like my really? hips, my hammies, like everything, just from doing. I'll be completely new stimuli to those joints. Yeah, so. yeah no, for sure. But I was like, because when we started using them with Alex, we're doing some low volume stuff but I needed it quantified I needed to know what it gave me first and so I was like right fuck it let's just zoom let's get real fast <laughs> and see what yeah. happens but I was like knocking I think I'm not like 12% off my standing 10 metre time by adding bungee so I kind of used that as a rough guide and then when I went to programming never went near that that number <laughs> With uh, <laughs> with Alex, because you don't like you think you're speeding yourself up by twelve percent of max. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, that's huge. <laughs> that is a, that's a big jump. <laughs> yeah. So, and my thirty-one-year-old body found that very, very interesting. <laughs> How have you found the assisted sprinting stuff? Because not many people use it. The the research is not controversial, but some say good, some say bad. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that gives a good picture of how well it could be used. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, but I just think w- what we know about it is limited. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so how, how have you found it? Like, my thought process going into it was, like, obviously, you've got your... It's just part of your peaking structures and can be used part of your peaking system. Like, if you... So you're taking someone through sort of a, a traditional prep cycle and then... You know, you, you're going to do some of your uh, base strength work, you do some of your circumax work, then you'll start looking in your ballistic continuums. Uh, and and then obviously, like my sort of, my, the thing, the thing with it as well is I will start with just like drills um, because what you're trying to do is like part of it, really drills at submax, you're just trying, because you're just, speeding up the body across the ground fractionally legs just have to turn over quicker so you start and that those reflexes have to work faster and the easiest way to do it it's kind of like using using a heavy sled to reinforce acceleration mechanics if you want to increase leg speed but leg speed at lower velocities then you just push the athlete like mm. you just give them a little nudge and uh, it's the same as doing um, you could do drills going down a hill going down yeah. a slow hill prime time's going down a hill like it's exactly the same but not everywhere has like a 10 degree hill that you can use or no. so you just get a light bungee and then you start pushing them along um yeah and i just found that you know the thing is um with the with that speed stuff is that you there's always that disconnect and i, I remember speaking to james smith about this is like there's that massive disconnect between product programming speed and then programming stress of speed so like step count is is your loading every step's a rep isn't it really mm. and quantifying those stresses um 
so you, you know acceleration session all based on contacts contacts yeah. above 90 percent of 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 sprint speed which you would for a plyometric session so why yeah. is this any any different exactly. i guess people okay. tend to do speed based on distance how we did like sprints over five yeah. times uh, 20 meters don't they? But. yeah and and so this is where like my the connection especially with team sports and i've not worked with world-class sprinters you know, and those are the problems that um i have you know you speak to jonas about those mm. problems because they're completely different but working with team sports um i think that because that type of athlete as well and some of the problems that you find like leg speed is a huge issue with team sport athletes it's like just being able to move the legs fast so it's those re- the reflex work and that assistance just helps put the those little finishing finishing touches on uh, on the problem like they do everything resisted all the time team sport mm. back squat heavy this loaded this loaded this and as soon as you give them some sort of assistance or facilitate the stretch shortening cycle more in more elastic terms they're just they just go through the roof because it is so new but if you keep the volume low uh, but the intensity high enough then you know I, I don't see a problem with it don't see a mm. problem with it at all um, and you know we got like I was just saying like you get someone I heard like 6 foot 6 113 kilos running 9.6 metres per second and we only touched it twice yeah, in a camp, in a block, you know, um, and you'd like so how I'd sort of put my sequencing together is yeah they'll, they'll do the strength stuff and he only he only trapped about 140 kilos in camp. That's the heaviest he did in camp. Uh, but his big problem was relaxation, so that eccentric absorption uh, and, and and that switching problem. on and off. Yeah, again, yeah, yeah, that facilitation, uh, and that's why the assisting. So all of his cues were in the weight room were just relax, relax, relax under the bar, like manipulate the load, turn your body off to turn it back on again. Um, and so that was a big problem that we found and that's how we chased it. And then we used the assistant stuff with the drills and with some of the running um, to, to help him stay relaxed, but at faster speeds. Because the only way he's going to get his foot back down quicker or, or it's going to pop up quicker is, is that element of relaxation. So we recommend all of that that stuff in the gym. Teaching how to relax is almost essential prior to doing the sports-specific skill practice that you did with the nudge. Uh, That gives them the stimuli to actually tolerate it in a more sports-specific task. Yeah, yeah. And And then all of a sudden you see they're just huge improvements. Yeah, and it's like, so why would, you know, you've got someone obviously, and this is where it ties back into uh, the Speedgate Golf and stuff that I play around with uh, and all those sorts of things. Um, And it's quite interesting how, like, when people quantify, like, yes, 90% above effort is what's going to develop speed, but is it? Mm. You know, like, and I've always thought about this, is like, so when, when I had my thought process going off the conversation that I had with James a few years ago, when he was just reinforcing that step count, um, I was like, okay, so if I'm now going to bridge that gap between programming for speed and in, the, and in the weight room, then you've got like every rep is a rep, every step is a rep, and what's the best way to increase that, um, that load, that, that, that adaptation? Well, sub-maximal loading. So, sprinting sub-maximally with less skilled participants 
is going to yield a ridiculously high effect. Mm. You know, um, and it was yeah, and and it's it was just crazy because you get them, you just you just align them into that way of thinking and into that way of moving. And we were playing it last night at Henley, closest to the pin. It was like two seconds, like two second, ten meters, two second, ten meters, and then there was only about eight of them. And then when one got it, next one got it, next one got it, and it was like a 208, a 204, a 20 something. And then we had like eight or nine, just boom, 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 boom. And then you got the coaching aspect of it and that peer learning, because everyone yeah. just starts seeing it and they're relaxed and they're moving. It's like, right, sweet, one eight, boom. And then off the back of that, we were like, right, foot down, because we had established that rhythm and relaxation and that just that timing. Straight away, one guy just drops a one six. Out the back door, easy. Looked effortless. Mm. It's like, okay, we facilitated. You know, it's like that whole mess of ideas, but that's kind of like where I go, how I sort of see it all fit together, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's definitely to hear, uh, you know, good stories from this type of uh, application because, yeah. yeah, the research is so limited. Yeah. And when you try and present that, for example, to the students, so I did the a first-year lecture with students, yeah. uh, took note all the differences between assisted and resisted types of sprinting, what does the research say, you know, how would this affect loading, maybe in the vertical plane or the, the horizontal or whatnot. Um, because the research is so limited, it's hard to uh, give them a better overview yeah. of what it has the potential to do. Yeah. And they have a bit more of an understanding where, we, you know, we've got our lecture and we move into... <clears throat> We move into what we, we've got a large tennis hall where we you play with the kit. And they start to feel the difference. They're like, oh, okay, I can see why this might be used. I can see what the assistant, the nudge is trying to do. Yeah. So that they can get that applicable applicable side of things. But you know, hearing stories of how it's all pieced together. Yeah. Is great to then okay, this is opening up new lines of questioning, which we then can utilize and create studies for to actually try and reinforce what yeah. we're already doing yeah um so it's yeah it's great to like hear these types of things because then you can relay them back to students and allow them to make their own decisions based on um you know you know you've got research research is there to guide yeah at the end of the day it's not there to tell you what to do yeah yeah um so it provides you a base knowledge of what we know and what we don't know and then you try and figure that out practically so hearing anecdotal stories like that where you know that has a clear rationale behind why you've utilized it and you've seen the positive effect you start to have a better understand why the research is saying what it is and what it isn't saying so yes yeah, so, yeah no yeah for sure man the i think that that's quite a nice lead into like actually lecture life and you know the, the role and how yeah, because a big part of it is having a, a someone who's director of a program, a leader of a program, is to sort of talk about the role of um, the degree program in the strength and conditioning coach journey, and sort mm. of how where you feel that has a responsibility, where you feel um, you know it can go or where it should be. I mean, my story is quite different. I was I was coaching before I had my degree. And I was in a pro club before I had my masters. So, so yeah, I think that's you know a big thing to sort of have a little look at. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, there seems to be this weird perception of what 
university is for in the strength and conditioning world because it seems that people assume that you go do your degree and you come out a coach. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if other people are trying to sell that. I definitely don't try and sell that at open days, for example. I give examples of um, clubs that we are potentially working with, especially when it comes to developing relationships where we can get student in, uh, work placements yeah. with and also highlight where students have gone prior to doing the um, the degree program. Yeah. But ultimately, I see S&C a degree is teaching you how to become a better critical and independent learner in the realm of S&C. Uh, and if you're not doing that alongside your degree, you know, yeah. putting that into practice, then you're not utilising the degree to its full potential. So I always see like, okay, you want to be a coach, and I see this arrow. Yeah. Um, so you're coaching the whole time, whether whatever level it might be, whatever population you might be working with, and then near, probably near the beginning, you've got this block which you add onto the side of that arrow, which is the university degree program. Yeah. So the arrow's not going through the block; it's you know you add it on. Yeah. Um, so this notion that you can go do a degree and then become a coach, I just, I, I don't agree, agree with mm. everyone should be coaching. And then we go, Oh, who are your best, who are your best students? It's usually the ones that have gone away from, uh, doing their A-level studies, for example, yeah. they coach that might be in a gym. It might be S and C related. It might be just, you know, sport related. Yep. They've realized what they want to do and then they've come back. And they have all of these skill sets which they can then utilize when they learn the more scientific components of S&C yeah. and they can put it into practice because they've got that uh, availability to actually do that. So oh, I learned this in lecture today. I'm going to try and figure out what that means in a practical sense. You know, we're there in lectures giving practical examples, yeah. but we're not actually teaching within a, an actual and professional environment. Mm. Um, so at the end of the degree, we want people to be a coach with an education. So it's yeah. almost like you're a coach. Education is, is second. It's yeah. not you're a, uh, you're a graduate with some coaching experience. That's, it's, they're two completely different things. Um, so I'm hoping that once we have or I, people have a better understanding of what a university degree can do, yeah. then they'll be able to utilize it better. Mm. So everyone should be coaching. And yep. more and more students are doing that. And to help that, as a university, we need to help, you know, provide those relationships, introduce them, provide work placements where we can. So there's more opportunities for people to do that. Because I'm sure people will be coaching, then they might have to travel to university. You know, they might live up north and come down to St. Mary's. Yeah. All of a sudden, that cuts off their coaching arrow. Yeah, yeah. So we need to provide those opportunities for people to actually to do that um so i'm hoping yeah that leads into a, a better understanding of because i know on twitter if you go on there like university degrees are getting a bit of hate at the moment really um it it, it does seem that way um you know and some employers have complained that you know they got some like, people with work placements yeah they come and but they don't know how to coach yeah. um and there are instances where that has happened and maybe it's their first work placement. So yeah. they have this knowledge they've gained in first year, for example, and they say, so, okay, I better start applying what I've learned. Yeah. They turn up 
So like, right, I need to start learning here. And you've got the employers going, oh, they're rubbish. Yeah. So well, they are just starting their journey. Give them a bit of breathing space. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas they get, you know, some students who have been coaching years beforehand, oh, these guys are really good. It's just they're just more ahead in their journey. Yeah. Um, I got a bit on that. I got. Oh, sorry, I got to interrupt, interrupt you because you've. No, not at all. Yeah, you set me. Up. <laughs> all right. So, having worked in the professional club game, and and sort of, I've been. I was very lucky, as I was had been coaching before, uh, before I got into a professional club. Um, and uh, luckily enough, I was into a club that I you know played the sport all my life so it was, it was a very sort of natural fit to, to that that realm however you know you do see and and my progression of coaching and then being in the position to have my own interns quote unquote interns and people coming in who are wet behind the ears um, they said they get a lot of information not a lot of coaching experience and but then this is where the problem in itself lies, where I think um, whoever that person was that starts complaining about um, their, that level of student coming in, and I can say this because this is my podcast, is, should be fucking ashamed of themselves because what they're looking to do is try and get free employment. You are not going to get the finished article coming out of a university. Mm. You're absolutely not. And you are not going to, as a, as a lead coach and as a coach in a professional environment, it's your job to show appreciation to that person who will inevitably give up their time on a dream of working in professional sport. Uh, and it's your responsibility to help give them a rounded experience help develop them, help continually develop them, not expect them to run sessions on their own or mm. be left alone or it, it, you've got a sole responsibility because if you're in charge of a... if you're in a position of leadership within a club and in an organisation, then it's your responsibility to help bring up the collective of that club and a huge part of how these clubs and systems and stuff operate is through the acquisition of placement students, graduates, internships, these people, because having worked and you've only got a support staff, you've got 40-odd-something players and you've only got three S&C coaches to, to do all of those sorts of things, Like you, you rely on them heavily. And whoever that was to call up and complain about that person was just fucking... Go away, mate. Like, that's mm. a joke. You just rattled me there because <laughs> they completely they completely forget. This is what I hate as well. You get people that forget what it was like chasing their profession of what they want. They forget what mm. it's like to be in those shoes. Uh, and then when you, when you forget that, you're fucking lost, mate. It, it does seem to... I, I could never understand it because... And like you said, it's about bringing up the club and with, uh, let's say, work placement students is such an important part of it. If you start negatively uh, you know, talking yeah. about your work placements, it just brings down the culture of your club. So Makes that you look never, like a never doesn't, make, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, but I think 
placements are getting better because club under, clubs understand how much an important part they are of the culture. Yeah. And I think the so say if I'm head of S&C at a club and I'll have lead S&C uh, assistants working just underneath me. Yeah. I would want them to have work placement students under their wing yeah. because I know how much... Uh, teaching others makes you a better practitioner at yeah. anything. Yeah. Teaching is often the best way to, especially if you've got a, an area you're not too uh, familiar with, it's yeah. like, well, go teach it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, you retention's better, yeah. you have a better understanding of what you were talking about uh, and its application. And yeah. <laughs> you see my hair. Like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. That's why when I do these seminars, I give free student places away to connect with those people mm. uh, and like you say it does really reinforce and support your, the, the learning of you as a coach but then you get the you know like a toddler why 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 yeah. and and you're constantly going over that and I, like when I was at previous clubs and in, even in, in other settings and I had a, 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 an assistant with me I'd just like take my phone film everything just film everything and you can ask me questions on everything because mm. it's it's, it's helped bringing that gap and bridging that gap because I, I, I want highly qualified assistants not by the end of the sort of by Christmas they're well up to speed with everything's going on they've got like a, a template of what they're doing so then the second half of the season they can absolutely fly through it and, and not just glorify people to fill up water bottles yeah, heartbreaking when I hear those stories. It's always the water bottles as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it is a fucking... We've had a few. But yeah, those stories are becoming less and less. That's good. And that's great because we're, we're getting more work placement opportunities because of it. Yeah. Um, and that is hopefully leading when we start rewriting the course because we have to rewrite the course every three years. Oh, through fantastic. a revalidation program. That we'd like to... So at the moment, in third year... Yeah. They have credit associated with 60 hours worth of a work placement or a shadowing experience, and then they have a presentation where they talk about key things that they've learned along the way, uh, that, yada, yada, yada. That's good. Um, and I would like to expand that to include credit associated in second year as well. Yeah. So it encourages more people to go out there and, and coach. Yeah. Because as much as we try and recreate that environment yeah. in a university setting, we will never create it exactly yeah so there's no point us pretending something we're not yeah so let's try and get over as much information as we can regarding um the human body how it works what you could potentially do and what the research says yeah give them all of those critical skills and make them an independent learner so then when they they take that and go into these um these work placement situations which they're getting credit for yeah then it's going to create better coaches no for sure so there's i mean i know we can critique or say like people shouldn't say that universities aren't doing enough yeah. i think universities can do more but um and that's an example of where universities can do more um yeah. but it's not to say that graduates are completely useless you know they're not creating coaches yeah uh, and also, sometimes those fucking lazy bastard students need to embrace the suck a little bit. There is that, you know. There's certainly that. You there know, is that. attendance is important. Yeah. My, I had a record the other day. Yeah. Someone was late to a two-hour seminar of mine. Yeah. By an hour and forty minutes. Oh wow. Yeah. I just, I just, why come? Yeah. I just don't get that. Um, so those those challenges must be interesting. 
Yeah. I mean, you spit like, you know, we take pride in all of our lectures. We want to give as much information as we can. Yeah. Um, we're very critical of ourselves when it comes to how we deliver it. So then when you put all the efforts, think, right, we're going to talk about this. I've got these preemptive questions because I want to act as a devil's advocate. Yeah. And then, like, it's supposed to be have 30 people and three turn up. You're like, yeah. oh, oh, that breaks you. Because the best way is those discussions. Yeah. Yeah. And tasks, reflecting on tasks, go back and do something else. That's, I think that's the best way of learning. Yeah. Um, you know, the lectures are there and they give you the base level of knowledge, but they're just introducing you to topics to go look at independently. Yeah. Uh, and then the seminars allow you to expand it and apply it. And then by doing that, you're going to have a load more questions. Yeah. Because um, I'm sure, like, from my own education, the, the stuff I remember is that we're doing a task I've got, oh, a question comes up, and I'll speak to, you know, probably John Goodwin at the time. It's like, yeah. oh, you know, I have this question. And he'll give me an answer. And just because I physically found the question, yeah, I remember the answer. It's just yeah. better obtaining that information. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think there's that huge point as well. Like, because when you're a student, you're a little bit like, like oh, my God, like, this is so much information. Like, this guy's really fucking smart. Like, da-da-da-da-da. And... Being, being able like it's through those discussions, being able and um, and developing that ability to stick your hand up and ask a question, is so powerful. Like mm. we are, I think we've both been at seven seminars with very very qualified coaches that will not stick their hand up and ask a question. Like it's, I just the, the worry of being it. judged. Yeah, exactly. It's, I was it's at terrifying. A, I was at a seminar, and there was a guy. Um, there was a fucking very, very experienced coach, like over thirty years of coaching. And there was this like young kid, and he stuck his hand up and asked like three questions, like very basic questions. But he didn't know the answer. He was nineteen, and I don't think he had a job. But he was in the mm. room with all these people, like very qualified people, and he was just asking all these questions. And you can see some of these coaches like think like, why? Why is he asking that? Like, why is he asking that? And it's like, the reason why he's asking that is because he's got the fucking confidence to do so. And he's yeah. hungry for his journey. And wants to I bet he's it. successful now. Yeah. I bet he's a good coach now. Yeah, I think he had the fucking best night of his life. <laughs> he, he, took, he took the floor, mate. And it's like that whole, like that nurturing process of being in, in those situations in university. Like, I mean, when I was doing my undergrad, um, like I'm quite fortunate because I'm just a gobshite anyway. Um, so I was happy to ask questions, um, uh, but I felt what helped me with that is being challenged by really smart people over the global concepts and like the general mm. concepts of things. Like it's really, really important. And like it sounds like with you, the program there, trying to put those, put those things in place. Um, to especially the coaching credits, that's huge. And would they be having to go and source that coaching themselves or? Uh, we've we've allowed them to source it themselves, but yeah. we provide many opportunities for work placements as well. So yeah. you've met Alex Bliss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So part of his role as a lecturer is uh, is like our work placement coordinator. Yeah. So he's speaking to potential employees, uh, and they come to him. They provide like a spec for the role. And then we we have Facebook groups for each year where we send it out. And what they have to do is then they have to send in their CV, their cover letter. Yeah. So we, we mock it 
just yeah, like yeah. them going for a real job. Yeah. So hopefully if everyone's taken advantage of that and applied for several work placements and yeah. say you applied for seven, you got three over the three years. Yeah. Like that's a lot of experience and that should really help when it comes to um, uh, comes at the end of your degree. Yeah. You should have a pretty decent CV. Yeah. Um, and Alex created a work placement event. Only yeah, I think I saw you put that up. It was in the pet, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, and yeah. we just had a huge circle of, and it was a number of professional clubs. The Royal Ballet were there. There were a lot of private schools. Yeah, awesome. Because they're really getting into it. Yeah. Um, all proposing, they're all there with, so there was a board where they put all the jobs. Yeah. Some paid, some work placements. And then they could pick and choose which ones they liked and then go speak to the the yeah. employees themselves and ask questions. Yeah, that's and cool. It was just such a great opportunity to, again, it's developing relationships and. Yeah. If I was, you know, one of those private schools there, and I'm looking for, you know, good student to work with, if anyone had the balls to come up to me and ask me a few questions, yeah, one I'm going to remember them. Yeah. I like that inquisitive nature about them, so I just think, okay, well, when they come to the interview, you know, I recognise them. Yeah. It's going to work in your favour, isn't it? So. Yeah. No, 100 percent, 100 percent. Yeah, that's really good. that's very very good. Uh, I think you know that is definitely moving moving in the right direction for these programs. Yeah, and, and it's kind of it's like with it when you like it, it is the GPP of a coach's journey is just that broad base of knowledge, mm. and then you can just push it and pull it wherever you need to go. You've not you've not tested it really to see if it's worked. You've not stressed it enough to to see what where it gets that transfer, you know that that transfer of knowledge. However, you know that you've always got it in the bank, uh, and and it, it has it has quite a uh, quite a strong residual uh, mm. that that deg- that degree program. Uh, but it's it's quite interesting, like because I, I I have this notion. And I think that it's what um, what some uh, companies and uh, organisations aren't exploiting is is strength and conditioning coach apprenticeships. I think it's a really untapped avenue. Yeah. Um, which it would be interesting to see. My my mum worked in co- in a college. She's a director of education at a college, and they they set up all these apprenticeships. Um, and I think you know how like you can do because obviously like. Which are the the goal of 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 these programs is to help build better coaches, build better skills, build better people. And I think what it uh, allow um, people to do is kind of like if if they if you go into you've done your strength and conditioning degree. I don't know what the cutoffs are. Can you have a, uh, do an apprenticeship if you've got a degree or or whatever like that? It depends on the level of education. But if you're if you're there now. Say for instance, if you had like a strength SNC coach apprenticeship, then they go in and they embark on a year's work with a club, and within that they have they go through an apprenticeship program. So you know they they do all this like with a carpenter. You go in a classroom, you learn how to not cut your fingers off. In the same way, like you then and then you'll go and you'll do someone have that have that looking over your shoulder, for instance. You know, um, yeah. But then. Everyone gets paid in the process as well. 
which is the yeah. huge one of the biggest complaints about it, is oh, I don't get money I don't want to work for free and it's like yeah. you got you got matey boy on fucking Twitter going this free person shit send me a better free person like it kind of will uh, I think an idea to like bring up the responsibility for these placement people that are like the overhead the heads of departments and those yeah. sorts of people through a through a program like that. I don't know what if you've got any thoughts on that I was thinking about it the other day I, I think higher education is going to have a big shift yeah. in the next few years I'm already seeing some um, and well a lot of a lot of the reasons why people don't do work placements, even though we, we give all these opportunities, and like, yeah. oh, why aren't enough actually applying for them? It's just because they just can't afford to do it. Yeah. They have to travel there, and they just they can't afford. So if we had an, a situation like that, I mean, I guess the closest thing to that is at the moment is like having a sandwich year, yeah. uh, which we are hoping to write into our program when we, we make the changes. Oh, amazing. Um, because um, that's a great opportunity because at the moment work placements tend to be near the university because they have to make it onto campus. Yeah. Uh, haven't, at the moment, they just have to take a leave of absence and then go and do a year working in the field, which has financial implications with it. Yeah. So if we had that within the program, that's what we've, we've been pushing, pushing yeah. for that about four years, but we can't, we can't make any changes until this periodic Time shift. of making the ch- shift of, to making the changes. Yeah, because they do it in every other progress, uh, profession. Like a guy that I I, uh, I know, uh, a lad I used to coach, he is um, works in like uh, animation and stuff, and he's in a gap year from Durham mm. University, like, and he's paid well enough to to yeah. do to do his gap year because they they, they recognise that, that he needs these skills. And he's like running photo shoots and stuff. Like, he's like 21. Yeah. Like, that, you know, then he goes back, he finishes, and then he's so highly employable. And probably, Certainly. Well, probably by puts, the person who's just, just had him for his uh, gap year. Yeah, exactly. You hear that a lot when they like, they remember them if you do a really good job. Yeah. Um, and we've had a few guys in work placements that have managed to get a job at the place they were at there was one at crystal palace uh there's a few more as well that's quality um so yeah the, the options are still there as long as you work hard and show that you're really willing yeah not to be taken advantage of then you know you, you get remembered yeah. especially if you develop really good relationships during that time um you, you would have thought if the club really likes you that they will happily wait for another year while you finish your degree you know, because you're continuing to upskill yeah. by finishing your third year. Yeah. Uh, that means you're even more ready when it comes to um, that they finish and ready to start working. Yeah. I mean, if, so, I, if, I had, if I had someone on a gap year and I was in charge of a program, I'd be like, right, come back and do your dissertation with me in your third year. Yeah. Come back, do your... Because I, I, I'm massive, like... Uh, I'm a, a big thing... I like to think I'm like a very holistic coach but I understand the appreciation of tracking, measuring, and understanding change. Yeah. So, you know, I, that would be like, all right, sweet, you're going to come do your project here, third year. Yeah. Make it a fucking good one. Yeah, and with that, they could learn a load of data collection, yeah. monitoring, and analysis skills. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and even if they don't use some of that going forward for many years, at yeah. least they have that skill set. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Because sometimes we get often, it's like, why are, you, why are you teaching that? Why is that within the curriculum? It's like, well, we teach everything and yeah. you pick and choose which you think is relevant for your population, for your skill set, what you prefer, yada, yada, yada. So, so I think that's great. Like, we do get more and more dissertations are done with out in the field. More applied stuff. And, yeah. Because that's from your point, like you said earlier, you've gone from uh, osteoarthritis... Um, and now you're looking like, how do I apply this to applied setting, like more sports performance setting, for instance. So yeah, it's kind of that evolution of research. Oh, change, certainly, isn't it? I think it shows how important research is. Um, yeah. People often think, oh, you know, research doesn't have all the answers, and it's like, yes, it certainly does not. Yeah. Uh, but if you think about it, like it's on a continuum, like all the way down here, like think about all the way down to the petri dish. It doesn't really yeah. go that far down for the SNC, but yeah. and then you go all the way to depends if you're Russian uh, or not, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you head all the way down to uh, the other side where you're actually in a performance setting. Yeah. Like N equals one. Um, you know, you're not controlling for everything because you can't because you're working in a professional environment. Yeah. So all these questions that research is answering happens on some place yeah. on this continuum. Yeah. And it allows you to have a, an understanding of the area. Yeah. And one of the things we want to develop is those critical skills so you can actually critique. It's like, okay, this study found this, but they control for these things. They found this effect likely because of this. Yeah. Uh, and then you have a better understanding of what that finding has in the grander scheme of things. Yeah, yeah. So if you can understand that, you can then analyse all research appropriately and then come to a better conclusion when you're in a more uh, you know, professional environment where I always see, like, if you're working one-on-one with an athlete, that's it's still a study. You know, you've yeah. made a rationale. Um, you have a rationale for the programme that you created. You yeah. do it. And then you have some form of results, yeah. however, whatever you've measured. Um, and then you reflect on that and make the next stage. And yeah. that has, you know, it's similar to research, I think. I think, yeah, and I, I think there needs to be more, um, there needs to be more like, so I always thought this and think this in my co- coaching. If someone from a university would contact me and go, look, we want to do a, a small sample study because we appreciate the value of stuff that you're doing in the field or, you know, problem solving on the front line sort of thing. We, we just, if you, because I'm dyslexic, I'm a terrible writer. So if someone turned around and said to me, it's like, look, can you put together this, give us all the data and we'll fucking, we'll sort it out <laughs> sort of thing. I think you would, that would help push up the profile of research like, mm. say, for instance, what we did with Alex, uh, application of assisted sprint with NFL player. Yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's a case study. It's, yeah. a, it's a form of form yeah. of study. And then that would so, spin uh, another question, wouldn't it? And it would, it would then certainly work backwards rather than working forwards. It's still saying something, and it allows transparency to what's happening in the field. And again, yeah, like you said, it creates more questions for yeah. people to, you know, if that that. Research is very much down near the professional setting, you know, yeah. that's probably has high ecological validity, yeah. but it might have create more questions anywhere on that continuum. Yeah. So, because I, I had Lance Brooks on, he's um, uh, working with uh, Peter Wayand. Oh, wicked. Yeah, yeah, he was on a few episodes. Like Wayand. Yeah, yeah. And he was saying how just like 
he was like, my job is twofold as a, as a researcher is to confirm what coaches can see, like put numbers to what they see, and then yeah. also ask further questions off the back of that, basically. And so, yeah. like, with your... Um, in a very conscious time, just before we wrap up, I want to actually let you show off your research because doing a PhD is a very admirable thing. Um, like, where do you think and what are the questions that your PhD has really asked and where do you think it can go? Um, so, so I used OA subjects. Yeah. So I shouldn't say subjects, participants. Yeah. I knew OA patients versus healthy controls. Yeah. Uh, and got them walking, got them walking upstairs and, you know, had a look at what was happening at the knee, at the muscles that were crossing the knee, uh, yeah. etc. What was I, what I found most interesting is that uh, I think it showed the effectiveness of the of the model that we were using. Yeah. Because uh, at the moment they're used to in within research, but not so much from a clinical setting. Yeah. I think stuff like this has a way to go, but it doesn't doesn't mean it can't head in that direction. I recently read a paper which is almost like the start of that. They did a systematic review as to what our model's showing. Yeah. What I liked was the fact that, say you compared the two groups that I looked at, uh-huh. knee, uh, knee angles yeah. weren't that different between okay. groups. Yeah. However, the forces going through the knee yeah. Most likely the differences between the medial and lateral compartment of the tibia femoral joint uh-huh. uh, and the muscles that cross it yeah. were considerably different. Right, so okay. all of a sudden it's showing sensitivity that you know you could perform some form of compensation. Yeah. It doesn't show too much difference from like the naked eye, but within the knee, yeah. there is actually quite a lot of distance, difference. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, in a master's... Uh, study actually using the same model they did an eight-week intervention with untrained females doing glute exercises yeah got them and then you know assessed them pre and post intervention based on uh, landing one-legged off a box yeah they found doing this glute intervention actually changed the distribution of how much force is going through uh, the two compartments in the knee but again not loads of difference in kinematics yeah so it's showing how that you know you might not see loads of a difference but what's going on in the knee there's a lot of difference and this could help with you know uh reducing the risk of injury especially chronic long-term injury yeah um so i would really like to start answering those type of questions Uh where you know um if we did something some form of physical training or we say we gave a particular cue that got someone to do something differently yeah um you know, what does that do in the knee? How does that change the muscular structure? Well, the muscle strategy to, for dealing with those forces. Um, so I think, yeah, I think it's a really exciting uh, area. I think there's another study that might be, I'm sure that was done. They had, got someone vertical jumping, yeah, uh-huh. just jump, and then there were two other cues. Yeah. And the cue themselves created them to jump differently, and then they showed just how much different the forces going through the knee and the muscle forces were wow. so it just shows how sensitive the knee is to yeah. very small changes yeah uh, the more aware we can be of this this surely is going to help with potential guidelines uh, and decision making when it comes to rehab programs strength and conditioning programs that sort of thing yeah so 
I mean, it's very much in its infancy. Yeah, it's but cool. I though. think it's exciting. That is very, yeah, that is really interesting. That is really, really interesting. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, because if you think, yeah, with all those, com- <laughs> the result of compression, compressive forces in and around the knee and, and everything that you're going through, through sport, cutting, change of direction, the amount of meniscus, all the buck- nasty bucket handles and all that sort of stuff that mm. you get, you can change the way you rehab, definitely. Definitely. Certainly. I would like to, another paper has started to do this, but uh, they had a lot of exercises where they measured the forces going through the knee yep. and they kind of created like a rehab guidelines based on how much force was going through the knee. So That's cool. instead of just focusing on oh, that looks more intense than that one, yep. they actually measured intensity based on what's going on in the knee and then structured the exercises based on that. Yeah. Um, so that's another direction this research could go. Yeah, that's um, that's that's some good common sense. Yeah, <laughs> that's, um, that's some good. Yeah, definitely. It would be interesting to see if, like, if people structured like a series of exercises based on I don't know some form of intensity measure. Yeah. If that actually measure, if that is exactly the same as if you actually measured what's going on in the knee, would they? Would that order still be the same? Yeah. Who knows? Like, yeah. that's something to look into. Yeah, for sure. All right, perfect. Uh, this is a very good time uh, to finish part one. Like I said, we, we try to get everyone back for a part two. Um, so, yeah, no, it'll be, it'll be good. To, that sounds uh, good to me. I'm definitely keen for, to dig for round two. Yeah, just fucking yeah, talking certainly. shit. I might have a bit more on that, that research direction by then. So Yeah, no, yeah, perfect, mate. No, that's good. Like, I, I, think it's, I think it's very valuable to put the messages out there, and especially talking about your... Um, your role as a program leader in developing future S&C coaches because like I said everyone complains about interns not being good enough but they don't really understand where they're coming from so you know yeah. it's just yeah I think you've shed some really interesting light on that so that's good yeah it's just it's just having an understanding of what the the employers can do and what the role of the university is and you know there's always room for improvement there's room for university degrees to improve themselves to create better coaches yep. at the end of the day um students come to university uh, to s degrees because they likely want to be a coach so how can we better prepare them um and with the snc community is changing so regularly yeah um sometimes it's hard for universities to keep up but yeah. that doesn't mean that we can't try yeah for sure for sure so um do you, so with your research stuff, are you quite active on Twitter? What's your Twitter handle? Because uh, Twitter and Instagram is where I'm most active. I yep. guess I use Twitter for more of my academic stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Instagram, I use for more of my, uh, you know, my sport. And yep. I, I work with uh, a company, an ambassador for for kit bricks. Yeah. So yeah, check them out on. Yeah. Um, check my uh, yeah. At the price set is the same for both. Um, at the price set. Yeah, same for both Instagram and Twitter. Go buy yourself a kit brick. Well, what percentage do they get? What discount? Oh, yeah. If you use Phil 5, you get a 5% discount. There we go. There we go. Outstanding. What a plug. Yeah, outstanding. <laughs> right, that, that leads off this episode of Sports Talks, Understanding People Behind the Posts. I am your host, Sam motherfucking Portland, and I'll speak to you next time. <laughs>